now, our feature presentation. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Florida Sound Archive podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Kaiser, and for today's interview, and by the way, the last interview of 2023, I have with me a very special guest. You may know him from the band No Fraud. I have Dan Destructo on. Dan, how are you? It's the best day ever. This is it. This is it. Best day ever. Why is it the best day ever? Because we're speaking, and our our words will encourage the earth to uh, go on to better things, to move on from these conflicts that we have out there today. But basically, we're saving the world. It's been quite a year, 2023. What's been some of your biggest highlights of the year? <laughs> there hasn't been too many highlights. Uh, we played some shows. Those were fun. but uh, And working on some uh, no-fraud stuff that hasn't come out yet, so... Those are all good things that have happened so far. Did you think after all these years, what, it's been 50, close to 50 years now, 40, 40 years, 40, 50 years since the band started, that you'd still be out there playing no fraud music? No, pretty much like most of us uh, 70s into the 80s punkers. I think we all thought we were going to be dead for most of us anyway, unless we unless we were nailed to the crooked cross. But that came later in the 80s. What's been your secret to longevity? I don't drink as much as I used to, sadly. But uh, I mean, you know, technically I've been a vegetarian for like 40 years. So that maybe helped. A little bit better diet than some of my other punkers. At least a a conscious effort to try to have a better diet. And some, you know, of course, veganism and all that good stuff. But attempts at counterbalancing the uh, party excess with some some, uh, exercise and Special vitamins, special, special vitamins. Well, there you go. That's the secret. So thanks for sharing that. And uh, so let's kind of take things back. Let's go back to where it all began for you. So where'd you grow up, Dan? I was I was manufactured in New York. We I was born in Chicago. And then I uh, we got to Florida in the early 70s. So I got there. In a, let's see. First or second grade, I think, somewhere in there. So you grew up there, you got there very young. And what did your parents do for a living when they were in that early period in Florida? My dad was a auto body slash mechanic. Uh, he worked for mostly like GM places. So mostly, and of course in Sarasota, because Venice did not have, because we moved to Venice, Venice didn't have uh, car dealerships. Yeah, we didn't really have car dealerships yet. And then, uh, uh, my mom was basically, she kept house, which I'm, you know, between my, my sister's a lot older than me. She's like a fair amount of years older than me. So, um, you know, she just kept, tried to keep me uh, from getting arrested as much as possible. That your only sibling? Yes. What yeah. kind of influence did your parents and your sister have on you musically? Some actually, because my mom, they were like super like Orthodox Christian stuff. So 
I led a musically sheltered life, but they, uh, my mom played piano and organ and did so in the church. And my sister also was a piano player. So I was exposed to music at a young age, but just not a variety of music, mostly uh, like, you know, church music. And then, yeah, within a year or two of moving to Florida, my mom went with some church choir and we toured in a freaking bus because they had to take me because I was too young. So I got exposed to touring at a young age, technically, I suppose. Did you sing in the choir? Oh, hell no. They, okay. they, <laughs> all they could do was uh, whatever they could do, uh, make me not say anything, basically. Okay. <laughs> what about instruments? Did you learn how to play an instrument when you were younger? Yeah, I mean, they forced me to play piano, which was horrifying and organ. Uh, I mean, I didn't mind, I would say, playing on the instruments, but they didn't like me playing on the instruments. It was, again, super structured and rigid and had to get lessons and had to, you know, read sheet music and uh, do recitals and all that stuff. And I didn't enjoy that at all. I can imagine. Where did you go to high school? Uh, Venice High School. <laughs> Not the best. Uh, I was supposed to go to a gifted school, um, but I did not go, which, you know, I think maybe I would have gotten a better education, but most of the people I know that went to that school, uh, didn't have the best social skills, you know, I so yeah. trade off. And I wouldn't have met yeah. most likely the people that I grew up skating with and surfing and, uh, and getting into punk well like discovering punk rock through our like many a sob story like through skateboard magazine or something sure i was gonna ask you think about your high school years what influenced you in that period what were you listening to when you were in high school uh there was like a group of us there's only like six of us probably that really <laughs> skated from like the 70s into the 80s and so in junior high school even in a grade school technically we started getting into like hard rock but i couldn't once again my parents are super strict and for me it was it was uh super interesting because i didn't grow up around like rock music much so i, I would hear it like on my school bus or something um once i would go over to my friend's house you know via skateboarding and stuff i got interested in all this rock music so that would be stuff from like the mid 70s so like Sadly, like arena rock stuff and the nuge and uh, all those kind of things. And then that, I mean, I was lucky enough that right when punk exploded, I was just getting old enough to uh, be interested in it. But we had no exposure because we didn't have a record store in our town. Like I grew up on a dirt road. And when I was growing up, I-75 didn't connect to Tampa. So... In a way, if you were south of, say, Tampa or Bradenton even, you were, in a way, isolated. We weren't really connected to Tampa. Like, to get to Tampa, we had to drive on US-41, which was all lights and everything, and U-301. So, yeah, it was a little different. We were a little more isolated than some of the other, like, you know, obviously the bands from Gainesville or Miami or Tampa, because they, in Orlando because they were all college towns. So they had a built-in music population and they had a built-in scene to some degree because there was, 
at least bands playing, you know, a variety of bands. Where we were, it was just all like country music, church music, and some rock music once we, you know, and if some of the bars, but obviously we weren't old enough to go to bars. So, sure. Do you remember what your first concert was? Um, I want to say it might have been some show where Aerosmith played or something. I think some friends took us up there. But then, like my second, which I was, it was interesting. But it, again, it was like the, an arena type show, big show. And I don't know. It was weird because everybody was just getting wasted. And it, although the music to me, because it was still all fresh to some degree, was super interesting. But it seemed, I don't know. I mean, we had party places where hundreds of people would go party because we were out in the middle of nowhere and we could do that. But to me, it was just a bigger version of that with music. And and uh, and that wasn't I, I liked it, but it wasn't super interesting. And then within a year, so by like eighty eighty one, we were going to Tampa to see like the Ramones play or something. Who were some of those earliest punk bands you remember learning about when you eventually did come across some of those bands? Uh, the normal ones, like I we of course heard about like Sex Pistols because it was on TV, and and by by the time I was kind of getting interested in that, like. Sid Vicious was on the news because, you know, he had been in a stabbing incident and then he was dead. And, you know, which technically was almost verging into post-punk by that time. But that was when we really had started to find records by like 78, 79. We were like fully into punk. And then, but we had no <laughs> hardly any access. So we had to make friends with the guys at the record stores. And then they would order us stuff but you know it was like special order usually there was no per se punk section right did you feel like as you were discovering punk you were starting to change yourself like did your look change did your attitude change as you got more into punk yeah i mean for me it was all really fast because i'd grown up in such a uh you know sheltered existence in a way that like all of it happened really fast, like not so much skateboarding. I'd been skating for a few years, but once like, say we were in like junior high or something. Uh, yeah. Then it just like, I was in the rock music for like a year and it was straight into punk. Like it was no, the two for me were kind of merged because I, it was all new. And I was like, you know, be able to like start building a record collection in somebody else's house or hiding stuff in my house because I would get in trouble. So it was all really fast. And then we also started, um, cause one of the skaters that I skated with was a good guitar player. And we were like, and my, my other neighbor was into music. So we were like, all right, let's form a band. Because at that time that was also normal in a way, like kids had bands because they were into rock music or whatever. And it was like a, it was not like strange. Like now it's almost a little strange because there's all these other things you can do. But then it wasn't that weird. But to us, like, yeah, we wanted to be basically make like a punk band, like almost immediately. Soon it, I mean, maybe because it was easiest, but <laughs> also <laughs> because it's what we were into. Like for us, that was new and emerging. So that's what we wanted to do. Sure. Did you remember like that first Florida band, probably locally that you, that you, we're aware of at that time. No. And that's, what's weird. Like, because we were so isolated and young, I mean, so that, yeah, 79, 80, 
we had already decided that we were, you know, we were already had instruments, you know, some borrowed, some not borrowed. And we were already starting to try to be in a band and we were covering like Sex Pistols songs, Generation X, like normal stuff, uh, just all like 77 punk. So no, we didn't like have like another band to look at. So that's why it kind of was weird for us in, in general, even into No Fraud. So that band we started was called The Warp. And that started like 79, 80. Uh, by 80, we were actually playing. And uh, so when we went and saw the Ramones, I think somebody opened up, which was like the Three Bobs, I think. Something like that, which we found out was a local band. But yeah, it was strange. We had, by 1980, via skateboarding and stuff, we had met other people in towns near us that were also kind of in the punk. So we were playing... We played a party in Bradenton through some skaters. They were like, hey, there's a party. Come play your band. Because we were like the only band. So we went up and, and uh, played. And it was some in some fancy house by the water. And uh, and in, within five minutes of playing, the people that had invited us were like, stop. And uh, they're like, what is this? And we're like, oh, we're a punk band. And then people were like screaming it for us once again, like, play the nude or whatever, Journey. All these things and we were like oh we don't know really how to so guys were trying to get up and show us how to it was a disaster but it was also funny because it was like chaotic for 10 minutes of punk and the skaters were thrashing around and and so it was fun and uh that kind of got me into it the rest of the way but within a year that band we started playing some shows and and uh just local things like parties and we started realizing like no bar would have us because we were too young but also they didn't like the music and and um, so we just started like playing in our warehouse and stuff and sure. built our own scene out of that. What did your parents think about this new you and the music you uh, were playing? Good question. Not happy, but there was tons of other stuff going on at that point in time. Uh, I mean, they were supportive in a way because once again, it was probably keeping me from getting arrested. So we would like, they'd let us practice in the garage, that type of thing, which was awesome. But then- it was a conflict because I was not into like the whole church thing. And, you know, I'd been reading since I was little and I think my version of reality and their version of reality were two vastly different things. So that didn't help. And then, yeah, I mean, the punk thing for me fit because it was like rebellious and uh, different and full of energy. And I was super physical. So I liked the, whole like wild dancing and uh, just the music, the aggressiveness of it. And I like the, the political part of it because to me, from reading and stuff, I had all these in different ideas. And so that was super interesting to me was, oh, look, this music actually is going over some of the psycholo you know, psychological, sociological issues. And uh, it's not afraid to explore some dark stuff or to be funny or like it was super varied where in pop music, I guess you call it. Cause then rock music was to some degree, pop music. Um, they didn't really get into all that stuff. It was tended to be like love songs or, you know, other love songs requited, unrequited, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, variance in topics. So it got boring to me lyrically super fast. Did you eventually at some point write a love song yourself? Maybe. I mean, some of our songs, you, they're more like relationship songs than love songs. But yeah, kind of. There's 
like thinking of you is kind of like based on a love song idea. But I mean, boy, that's about as far as we go. But that was also kind of a joke because where we live, like a tourist town, um, those that moniker would be on cards, like thinking of you and you'd send your friend a postcard of like a sunset or something, you know. So or, and it was just a joke. The title was a joke, but not a joke, but tongue in cheek type thing. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think of other ones like best of friends. Technically that was like a song about, so there was song about relationships, but not like, uh, what you would call like pining love songs or anything. Right. Nothing. Candlelight dinner. Not a whole lot of romantic ballads yeah. coming out. Of no fraud. Can. <laughs> no long walks on the beach kind of sound. Uh, not too many. <laughs> not too many. <laughs> Did your parents ever make it out to a no fraud show? Uh, about 30 years in, they it took them about that long. Wow. Uh, they were a little bit shocked and it was like a public one. So we weren't out of control. It was like a benefit for a skate park. And I remember seeing, I think my dad and I just saw him like, huh? Like, but I would say this, like, I think, I think over time and seeing like the things that happened in the community via the band, then, and maybe talking to other people and hearing about it, like secondhand, like from somebody else's kids, and the fact that we were trying to make a positive change because there was no music club. So we built one, you know, illegally, but we not illegally um, stuff like that. So we gave the kids a place to go and do things. And and it wasn't all about drinking. I mean, drinking happened or partying, but it was that wasn't the focus. The focus was to it sounds shitty, but like enlighten people like, Hey, cause that's how I looked at it. Like, boy, this enlightened me. I had learned so much from this music or just music in general. And, uh, so we'll have all these different bands. We didn't book like a specific type of band. We had everything from, uh, like DC bands, like scream play in the warehouse to mighty sphincter, which is like a pretty trippy, weird band from, where are they from Arizona? If I remember correctly at the time. So we would do all kinds of stuff. We would do everything from straight edge bands to more like rock style bands. And then we would of course try to encourage local bands, which would come in and, and it gave them something that we didn't have. Like when we were coming up, we didn't have any, anybody to mentor us or, or like say, Hey, here's a place to play. Like you guys should be a band and you should do this and do your own thing. Like don't, copy us don't just whatever you're into make that happen we don't care we'll let you play because we just want you to be able to express yourself what was the name of that place we had a couple of different ones uh the first one was just my literally my dad's work warehouse because they got smart and decided we shouldn't practice once we got better equipment and we're getting louder that we shouldn't practice in the garage um for the neighbor's sake and their own mental health so we started practicing in the warehouse and then over a period of time, once we started doing shows, we realized it was impossible because there was stuff in there and we didn't want anything to get broken or stolen. So then we just rented out of our own money, the warehouse next to it when it became available. And we built a little stage in there and everything. So it was like, kind of like a little venue, real venue, but you know, it was only what, 20, 30 feet deep. And, but it had at least had a tall ceiling, but it was just a sweat box. So that was just, we would call that, those were the warehouses, the original warehouses. And then then we did other ones when we moved it around. We had like uh, Uncle Funky's Grunge Box. We had we had all these weird names. Betty's by the Wayside. We had 
some of them, when I moved out by the by I-75, actually, we built a stage on the side of the house and did like outside, outside shows and all kinds of bands played there. Were you working at this time to help fund some of the costs that would go into this? Yeah. I mean, we would never keep money if possible. Like sometimes if we were coming up short on rent, we might, and it was like local bands would say, Hey, can we keep 25% to put towards rent? And, but like a touring bands, now we just give them everything from the door. And the door was always like $2, $3 donation type thing. Gotcha. Who were some of those local bands you remember from that period? Boy, there was all kinds. I, that's a good question. Off the top of my head, I can't remember them all. There was just so many. 12 Cents a Shot, Man-Made Monsters. There was a lot. So would you say that the scene back then was pretty thriving with a lot of a lot of kids who were playing music at that time? Yeah. I mean, in our area, which would be Venice slash Sarasota. I mean, they're not connected, but we're in Sarasota County. I mean, unbeknownst to us, like right when the warp had started and when the warp ended like 81, 82, and then No Fraud came out of that. In fact, first couple of No Fraud shows, we, I, we basically didn't have a name. So we were kind of bouncing around through names and we would, some of them have like the warp on a flyer. But around that time, there was a band, I think at Fort Myers, which was a good band. It's like a collectible seven inch. We didn't even know each other existed. Like not until... Like you were saying, like until we went to Tampa. So by 81, 82, and we were starting to go to Tampa to see shows in St. Pete, we would see like uh, UK subs at the Red Rose Pub. And and all that was mostly through skating and skate parks. Somebody would be like, hey, Black Flag's playing. Hey, uh, UK subs is playing. Um, you know, the Ramones are coming. Or so. But through that, we met other people because at that time, it, like even if you went to something like uh, Devo, you could tell who was like more into punk punk. <laughs> and so you would talk to those people. And that's how I met like Brian from Pagan Faith. And so we, like I said, we had been playing, but we hadn't played in St. Peter, Tampa. So that would be, boy, I don't think we played. I think we played a Fang show in like 83, 84. So we played in Tampa by the Rainbow Wave Skate Park or somewhere around there. And then we played... Which came first? I can't remember. We had played Brian's house. And that was like weird for us because we went up there. And in our minds, we we're like all these agro skate surf punk guys. We had, like you're saying, we already had a giant scene in our town. Like in, in, and BP had just probably started up around then. And so we play shows in our town and have a hundred kids there. But then, so we go up to this thing and there's the same thing, but it's way more variety. Instead of being all surf skate punks, this is like some not a 77 style punk still a lot of goth punk kind of cats and so it was cool we were psyched like oh all these different people and all this different music and their bands were playing and which we liked and then we played and all hell broke loose like in this driveway and and people weren't stoked i was like well this is weird because <laughs> it was like a pit and and it was because we were more like punk thrash and everybody else was more like punk and so some people I could tell were looking at us that were in bands were like, oh, because we were like super aggro and fast and they were kind of more into the 77 thing. So it was weird. And but like some people super dug it and 
would come up to us like, oh, wow, you're the first band I've seen that, you know, in a long time that's like, you know, doing this or whatever. And so then at that point, the scenes kind of merged and all those Venice and Sarasota people started going up to shows. And that's also when more like local oriented shows started happening in Tampa. St. Pete was probably 84. You mentioned a Fort Myers band a little while ago. Was that Antler Joe? I think so. Okay. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Band that, what was that? Like uh, 81, somewhere 82. I can't remember the year that came out, but we didn't, and we're not that far apart. We were as close to them as we were to Tampa. Sure. But But like us, they're kind of like out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. That's the only punk seven inch from that period I'm aware of from Fort Myers or from yeah. the Southwest side of the state. So that's and it sucks. Cause by then we were already starting to do like by 82, we were starting to do like little shows. So it would have been great to have them come up, but no, like once again, it's, it's weird that from like Sarasota, maybe even Bradenton, but basically Sarasota, to Naples at that time. I mean, Naples, they could at least get to Miami quick, but say <laughs> Sarasota to Fort Myers, you were kind of like, nobody cared. It was just like, and rightfully so, considered a bunch of rednecks. You know, Sarasota, not so much because there's two art colleges there. When people, we would tell people we were from Venice, they're like, where the fuck is that? Or we're like, isn't that a bunch of rednecks? Like, yeah, yeah like there's cow fields. We go mushrooming out there. Like, <laughs> Did you go to college as well? No, I do have some college. Well, technically, yes, but not not to any fancy college town, no. The early formation of No Fraud, was that basically the same members as the Warp, or were there new members introduced when No Fraud finally uh, decided to become a band? Yeah, the original version of the Warp, which would have been like 79, 80, was my neighbor, Lee Lyman, once again, another skateboarder person. My friend Tracy Thompson, also another skateboarder, good, really good guitar player. He was like the guy that made the band functional because at least somebody kind of knew what they were doing. And then I was going to play guitar. And my other friend, Jason, who would later be in No Fraud, he was going to be in the band, but just never followed through. But we needed a drummer. I thought like, oh, I'll play bass or guitar or something. And the other guys forced me to be the singer, which I was not into. Like the first time we ever like played in front of anyone, we didn't even have a mic stand. Like put a mic on like a ladder or something. And we're playing in Tracy Thompson's like grandma's house and she was gone for the, the summer. And we invited some girls over like, oh, these girls are going to be so stoked. We're going to be in this band. They're going to be so impressed. You know, so we start playing like some Sex Pistols song or something. And the girls' faces go from like, uh, like, oh, to ah, and, and immediately all dreams were like brushed. And I was like screaming, yelling or whatever. <laughs> and I remember looking at the other guys and they were busy, like watching what they were doing, playing. And I was like, just watching the people. There was only like four or five people. And just immediately realizing what was super cool and interesting and new to me. And this is going to be the new thing was totally not acceptable. Like probably... Immediately in my head, I was like, oh, this is not going to be, nobody in town is going to like this. So I got used to rejection within the first couple notes of playing. But, uh, and then uh, Chris played drums. And we had a couple other people try to play drums because once again, unless you're super dedicated to punk or, you know, alternative lifestyle or whatever you want to call it, 
it can be hard to keep band members, you know, because consciously or not, people, I think, especially if you believe in it, you want people to enjoy it. So when you find people not enjoying it or that you can't get any financial uh, rewards from it, people drop out, you know, or people move on to some other thing or try to, you know, which is fine to try to do something else new. So speaking of that, yeah, getting back to your point, within a year or two, the other guys realized like, okay, this isn't going anywhere and people had to make money and do other things. So they moved on. And Jason, again, had tried to, he kind of bounced around, maybe practiced a couple of times with us. So when that band kind of fell apart and the other guys went on to be in a rock cover band and get paid, you know, and the guy that actually recorded our first No Fraud demo, even the garage demos, this uh, guy, Kirk, he formed a band with Tracy, the guitar player, and they went out and did their thing. I was thinking like, oh, well, what am I going to do? Not so much didn't want to be in a band. I just had a lot of other stuff going on between skateboarding and surfing and and uh, maybe, yeah, college and all that stuff. Wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And Jason kind of pushed to like keep playing music. And And by then, a scene had kind of popped up. So Jason and I found all, all these kids under us that were a grade or two below us that had gotten into skateboarding and stuff. They were all getting really into punk, like right when this was happening. Because when when the warp ended, I mean, people would come, but it was more like a party. When these under the kids under us, a couple grades under us came, they were in it because they liked the music. So all of a sudden, we found this other kid a couple years younger than us, Mike, and he was a really good drummer. And he was messing around with this other guy, Terry, and they were starting to form a band because I knew they're uh, Terry's older brother. So we we're like, hey, Mike, can you come sit in on drums? We have to play this little show. And he was like, sure. So we played and we we're like, boy, that'd be great. You know, man, would you think about now my wheels are turning and Jason's pushing it forward. And I'm like, OK, maybe we should do this. So that was the first version of No Fraud. So it was Mike shanking on drums, uh, myself playing guitar and singing, and Jason on bass. And we started getting decent response. And that's when we, I met Brown then, is when we played the Fang show. And and uh, and this guy, Dave, that I knew from skating, he was super into punk. And I think in the same grade as Mike. So uh, Mike and Dave were friends. We're like, hey, this guy wants to play guitar. And we started writing songs. Because at that point, I had written a fair amount of songs, but I was not, I wanted to play faster and some of them weren't functional. So Dave and I started writing songs together and it was going really well. And then uh, I wanted two guitars. And so we got Terry to come and play. And that was the lineup off and on for the first, you know, from like 83 to like 84, 85. And by 85, the end of 85, cause Terry and Dave didn't get along <laughs> cause they both, were, uh, you know, uh, type eight personalities, or you want to say, including mine. So it was like a battle. And uh, at some point, Dave just like decided he didn't want to do it, which was understandable. But he had helped write, I'd say, four or five of the songs off the off the demo tape, the uh, demo tape number one. And we didn't know because by we're all around this time. This is when we started learning, like, you know, getting maximum rock and rolls and stuff because it had just come out. We'd gotten the record and realized that, hey, they're going to make a magazine or whatever. And then we had submitted stuff to the first Maximum Rock and Roll record before that. 
through people had told us, but our recording, we totally was just total bootleg, like in our, in our room through a boombox or something. It was like okay, but they were like, hey, it's you know, normal letter, like this sounds pretty good, but you know, you guys should go into a studio. And that's when we started realizing, like, oh, we should probably go somewhere to record. And this is like for me, four or five years into playing almost, like, oh. I guess I should go into a studio. But to, before that, because it was so, we we're so isolated, I'd never really had that thought. What was the intent behind sending the demo to Maximum Rock and Roll? Was it to, just to get it reviewed or what What were you all thinking when you were sending it? Well, the, the very first thing we did, like I said, was just to re- because we were told from other people, because this is when we had started playing out and, you know, the scene by then I was like, what, 82, 83? Like I said, we started meeting people. We started going to more shows outside of obviously of our own town and bigger bands. And, you know, the word was out in the scene, which is kind of weird to think about now because there was no like internet or anything like that. This was all like word of mouth and, and from people booking bands and, and uh, in some zines, obviously were out that, that, Hey, Maximum Rock and Roll is going to put out a record. So we submitted something. And that's why, like I said, that's when we realized like, Oh, we need to like, learn how to record. And this is a whole process. Like we, we should have gone to a studio then, but also there was no studio in our town. (laughs) No, which is what people don't realize. Like if we had been from Tampa, that would have somebody probably that we known or would have met or been through rehearsing would have been like, Hey, you need to go to a recording studio. But we were so ignorant of everything and how everything worked that, I mean, we were DIY, not because we, thought of it as an ethos at the time it was out of necessity what was the first actual studio you remember recording in uh the one for the seven inch uh as i'd said this guy kirk henderson had gone even though you know he formed a band with my friend my uh old guitar player we were all still friends and he liked no fraud as it emerged and then he went to recording school so the first batch of recordings we'd bought a four track a higher end four track cassette machine. And that's what we, so we'd started learning recording through him. And then he was talking about building a recording studio, either in his, his parents owned an orange grove of all things. And they had like some buildings and he was talking about maybe building a studio or, but he's like, Hey, I'm going to buy this eight track machine. Cause we'd started looking for studios at that point. He's like, why don't you guys just come record with me and we'll, I'll do it for free. So that was a very good incentive. And you guys can come and and record. And he had helped engineer those first ones. He's like, hey, I really like these. And we were thinking like, boy, this is it. And he was like, no, we're going to do way better than that. So some of those tapes had leaked out. And that's where that 1984 Revolt album came from, was we initially thought we were going to make a demo from that in 84. But when he was like, hey, I'm buying all this stuff, like, let's just put it off a little bit and we'll do an eight-track recording. So we still had those master tapes, luckily, and that's got that's got remixed from that. That's where that album come from. But the actual first release that we did came right after that, and that would have been we recorded in like '85, early '85, and then it was put out like mid '85. And that by then the scene had kind of exploded in in Florida largely. By then, it became a little more mainstream. And that one we did send to Maximum Rock and Roll. Okay. Rave reviews. Rave reviews. <laughs> That's a great tape. And then right after that, that 
seven inch we recorded within whatever six eight months from then and that uh we did record an actual studio in sarasota which that building got demolished years ago uh with this guy doug and it, that was like our first what you would call somewhat proper studio experience the seven inch ep yeah do you remember what that cost to record not much but uh <laughs> it was we did it in basically we recorded it in like two days. I think we tracked all the instruments and everything in one. And then we went back to the vocal work. Some of the vocals might even been in live, like out of the control booth. And then we went back and mixed it. So it wouldn't, it didn't cost too much, like yeah. probably a couple hundred bucks. And who were the guys behind no clubs who put out the seven inch? It was interesting. Like I had known Tony Fujiato, uh from going to like clubs in Sarasota, Tampa and uh, Sarasota, Sarasota Bradenton area. And he eventually, or even then, I think he might've worked at a record store, which by then, as I said, we were, you know, putting our demo tape in stores, going and trying to find other stores that had different punk records. And, and he was, uh, you know, he understood what was going on. And then over time, he and his friend Dave started doing shows, some of them in Sarasota and stuff. So that was cool. Like they were doing events, you know, which when we were all kind of already doing it, but when you're in a band and at that point we were super busy and doing some touring and stuff, it gets hard to like consistently book shows when you're not in town. And then also he had contacts through the, um, I guess, through distribution. So he was able to do a way more professional job and started booking like bigger bands, which is great, but there already was people in Tampa, St. Pete booking, booking bands. So they weren't like the first people there by any means. Do you remember the first time you went outside of the Tampa, St. Pete, Sarasota, like that general part of Florida? Remember the first time you played somewhere else uh, and what that was like for you? I'd say 83, 84, we realized that, hey, there's like a lot of shows in Miami and it's almost... You know, it's more of a drive, but we would go down to Flynn's and Cameo and stuff. And we saw a lot of bands down there. And that's when we started meeting all these other promoters. So then we started like giving them our tape and people started, you know, booking us out. And when the reviews came out and of the first demo tape in like 85 or whatever, all of a sudden we started getting all these record offers and booking offers. And, and some of them already knew us from us booking bands into the warehouse. So, I mean, we'd already started playing out. But yeah, when I'd say like the first real tour, like where we got out of the state of Florida was, I want to say it was 86. And by 86 and 87, like we were already going to like Canada and stuff and playing just on the demo tape, like before right. seven inch distribution, which I mean, it had gotten... Honestly, it did get really good reviews. So everybody was trying to get the tape and we made like 2000 of those things at least. And we were like letting other people copy them and make their own versions because we just wanted the music to get out there. So people knew who we were, even though we didn't have a record. Describe the difference between when you got to Miami and Sar the Sarasota area in terms of the music scene. What did you notice when you were there? Yeah, I mean, honestly, we were like most of the, kids that obviously were in the punk weren't in the rednecks because we knew 
what real rednecks were. I mean, we'd meet people in Tampa talking about rednecks. And granted, the outskirts of Tampa still had people with farms and cattle ranchers. But like these are people we like would see every day. Like we would be throwing parties out in their redneck, you know, area because you could. And they were friends. Some of them were friends. Some of them hated us. You know, some of them like that's how we ended up with Venice hillbillies and stuff because like you'd fight them. Like it would just be a fight because you'd show up with a mohawk in 1983, and they would be like, "What the?" And it's strange because I was reading a book the other day, and it made references to um, some other old books. But as early as 1880s, people were writing about it. What was his name? Sinclair, and not Upton Sinclair, the other Sinclairs, Lewis Sinclair. I can't remember his name. He wrote Main Street, and that book he kind of goes into like what living in a small town, like, and how it's kind of got its own politics, even though it's obviously within a larger government frame. But there's all this kind of uh, insinuated reality. Like, exactly, if you'd shown up with a Mohawk, you're kind of asking to get beat up because you're not conforming, basically. So they want conformity. Even then, people are writing books about it, you know. So it's, and that existed where we were. We're in a small town. Everybody knew everybody. I heard an interview with like Ian McKay or something talking about like, well, we were, you know, we're just a bunch of small town people like, yeah, but you could get on a train and be in New York in an hour. Like we grew up on dirt roads. Like we literally (laughs) were like rednecks, but not rednecks. So it was like confusing. Like we'd go places and just because we're so belligerent and our mannerisms and the way we'd speak, like we'd go to Tampa and people would be like, ah, it was rednecks from Venice. I'm like, wait, we have a song about rednecks. So it was like, it would be confusing, you know, go to Miami, which is way more metropolitan than Tampa. And in a way we fit in better because it was so diverse that when we showed up, nobody really noticed us. But when we went to Tampa, I don't know, it was weird. And Tampa was extremely violent by, by 85, 86, it was violent. Like it was, it was freaking violent. Some of it was legitimate. Some of it wasn't. And Orlando got chased out of Orlando by the O-Town Skins for uh, one of our friends, skater friends, Howard, happens to be black. Uh, Orlando didn't like that. So they, once they realized we were playing some warehouse party, it was like 85, 84. That was maybe 84, 85. And uh, we played the show, everything's cool. Big pit, everybody's going crazy for us. And then we go out, we keep, we're loading the van, and all of a sudden, like a couple flashlights come out. And uh, like, yeah, you guys got to leave. We're like, what? You know, looking around. And all of a sudden, there's this like a moment of like, oh, shit, this is real. These guys are fucking angry. So we get in the van and we're like talking to each other. Like, hey, what do you want to do? Like, should we get out of here? And all of a sudden, bam, like flashlight smashing the van. More people rushing out. We're like, oh, oh, <laughs> oh, shit. This is real. So he started the van and just back out. And there's all these people chasing us, like yelling the N word and all this stuff. We're like, what the fuck? Like, this is fucking real. But we were so from such a small, isolated place that any freaks, you know, and I'm not saying racial freaks. I just mean anybody who was into the music. We all banded together to protect ourselves from like rednecks and uh, jocks and like all these stupid high school click things. Because that's how we survived. But like, you know, we go to a bigger city and they're like, there's enough of punks, I guess, or racist punks 
that they could form their own clique and and try to push people out. It was that yeah, was eye opening. Did you ever experience that level of violence in any other parts of the country that you played in? Uh, not really, man. I mean, you'd see it in places for sure. You'd see it like, you know, there was some in Texas, but like random spots, but never like a little bit in California. I've seen it for sure. A little bit different, though. Different kinds of racism, like brown on black, black on brown, brown on white, like and I use those terms loosely. I'm just so you can see, get a visual picture of what's going on in your head. Like also because I was in it more in Florida and, and, but it's also notorious. Like, you know, people write about it. So it was, it was heavy, you know, like I knew the guys, the two brothers that killed somebody supposedly, you know, I most likely they did, but it's like at first they, maybe when we didn't know them so well, first couple of interactions it shows, but then as time went on and they realized probably the same for them, right? They realize like, hey, they've yeah, they got black friends. They got, you know, oh, they're like peace anarchy punks. Like, whoa, like fuck these guys coming into our scene. So then they started being violent towards us. And that's when you realize like, oh, this is this is in our scene too, right? So you fight back, you you know. And not so much to censor them, you fight just to be included. As the singer of No Fraud, did you feel like you were heckled at all when you were on stage? <laughs> yeah, I would. Yeah, but I also, you know, maybe heckled the crowd. So tit for tat, as they say. What was some of the the best heckling you can remember? All kinds. I mean, and not just heckling. I mean, I've been physically attacked a lot on stage, mostly by skinheads. I mean, we did something. Let's see. We played with Bad Brains and Clearwaters, uh, Clearwater and... Uh, I decided we'd shave my head on stage because I had like long hair like this or whatever. Shave my head. And they say, hey, something to the effect of like, well, now I don't have any hair and I'm still not racist. So obviously it isn't being a skinhead that makes you racist. Well, the skinheads that came to a bad brain show, which really doesn't make any sense if you're a racist skinhead in the first place, uh, to pay money to go see something you don't believe in. So among other shit we did, you know, they try to attack you. They try to pull you into the crowd, whatever, that kind of shit. You know, you lean over, somebody sucker punches you. That happened in West Palm. That happened in Orlando. That happened in Tampa, mostly in the middle. I don't think that ever happened in Miami. Maybe got attacked in Miami, but for different reasons. Um, yeah, it happens. I don't know. But if you are challenging people and trying to get them to think, sometimes those reactions are going to be, you know, possibly physical. Yeah. Did you find that some of your contemporaries and other bands were experiencing some of that same violence where you were getting hit and getting into fights and that and, and all that? Yeah. I mean, I think for sure there were people that without a doubt experienced some of it, but some of the bands I'm sure were completely indifferent. That wasn't what they're about. They just wanted to make music, let's say, and they weren't politically conscious or socially conscious in that way. And that's fine. Not every band has to be that. And then there were bands who maybe even that I wouldn't call racist, you know, bands. They don't have racist lyrics. They're not like screwdriver or anything, but they may hold some of those beliefs. So they, those guys were totally say the skinheads were kosher with those bands because they hanging out and partying and stuff, they realize like, oh, these guys are a little more aligned with us than say, no fraud is. No fraud is actually against what we are. So 
yeah, I, some bands definitely had problems without a doubt. Uh, would get, I mean, I maybe not as much physically attacked because I was fairly physical about it, but they would get shit thrown at them, you know, and attacked or yelled at. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, now that is not what happened to Black Flag when they played the Cuban Club, by the way. That was completely different. And I supported I, that attack, by the way. I only I only read about that story. So for those that don't know it, perhaps you can shed some light on what that story is all about. So this is a biased opinion from a, one of the bands that was there. Um, however it happened, it was confused. So somebody put out the word and booked local bands, us being one of, no fraud being one of, to the point where we, of course, communication wasn't as good then, but we, uh, us and a couple other bands drove to the show and we had been promoting the show. There were even some flyers with like, and when we got there, we realized like, hey, this is fucked up because some of these bands that are on the bill aren't the bands that are that we have on our flyers and stuff. So we talked to the promoter, which I forget who it was. And they were like, oh, yeah, man, the bands. I'm sorry, nobody contacted you. The bands uh, being Black Flag and I don't remember, Painted Willie and whoever, uh, Sacred Trust, which I met later and they're totally cool. But this <laughs> is... So we go, they go like, hey, if you go over, because I know a lot of people are, this is when you could park in the parking lot across from the Cuban club and hang up, people would party, you know, and they could tell a lot of people were there to see the local bands. Now, whether that was intentional or not to bring out more people, that's where our song Fuck Your Shit came from. It was actually from this show. But because the promoter basically was like, I don't know what's happening. One of those things. Can you guys go talk to the band? And uh, see if they'll let you play beforehand because I, I, they could sense because the word was out like, hey, the, all the local bands are playing. So people started getting rowdy outside the venue. So we go over and knock on the window to the black flag man. The window rolls down and this like fucking hippie music comes out of the van. And I don't know what it is. I'm just like, whoa, this is hippie music. I would learn later that it was a live Grateful Dead freaking tape like like how they all like to live tape the show so that was shocking enough me and like whoever dave i think was in the band or, and we're like oh it was like smelling bad perfume or something like oh this is so, so. so like hey um i think there's some confusion because there's like two or three local bands that are supposed to play they're all here and they have gear and uh the promoter said that we should ask you if if the local bands could play before you, in fact, we'll try to start the show early. And we'll all play like 15, 20 minutes each just so we can play. And there's a lot of people here just to see us. So, and in the van somewhere, you hear a voice go like, what are they saying? And uh, look back into the dark recesses of the van and like, oh, fucking. And uh, they're saying that there's local bands that want to play. Tell them no. So like, yeah, I can hear you, man. You're like, three feet further in the van. Okay. So we're like, yeah, look, it'd probably be a good idea. They're like, no, no, sorry, dude. Like roll the window shut. So we like walk back over and we have to inform everybody like, yes, it's not going to happen. So everybody's like, oh, that's fucked up. So now everybody's a little more riled up and people are starting to show up in mass. They're like, wait, the local bands are playing? What the fuck? So everybody goes in. I think the promoter lets us in for free or whatever. And so because we obviously papered the fucking show for him. So we go in 
and the bands are all just like this is like when hardcore was peaking in Florida. So this is like 85, 80, no, 84, 85, 80, yeah, 84, 85. So hardcore is peaking. All these punkers are there to see like some, some, classic black flag first 40 years shit and uh <laughs> and all the bands that play are like experimental sst shit so everybody's like what the fuck is this and so the crowd's like angry first of all that they don't get the local bands that are playing now they're getting bands that they don't want to see and it's all like styles of music that they it'd be one thing if you went to a show expecting it but they went to the show not expecting this so now they're more pissed they're all drunk Shit's getting thrown around. Skinheads are there too. And instead of like arguing with everybody, they're just pissed with everybody else. So Black Flag gets up finally. They're playing. They're like 10 minutes into their set. It's all like, uh, you know, drink a black coffee, all this stuff. So, you know, maybe okay. Like people are like, uh, and then Greg like comes forward and his guitar cord is so short that it pulls his amp off, head off, it smashes. Boom, they can't play. And and somebody's like, hey, get them an amp. Sacred Trust brings theirs, or, and we're talking about going to the van. And they're like, no, it has to be this amp. So he's literally trying to like fix it on stage. And now shit's getting thrown on stage. And uh, this guy who was like a roadie uh, for Black Flag, might have been Spot, might not. But all of a sudden, he's in the stage at the Cuban Club. is roughly chest high. It's kind of tall stage and people are starting to get climb up on stage trying to help. And all of a sudden he has a hammer and he's like waving it around, like kind of banging it on the edge of stage to stop people. So, and you know, now they've been getting heckled and shit thrown at him for like five, 10 minutes. And Pete and the word has gone through the crowd that they won't use another amp. And everybody's like, fuck this. this is that. So they grab the guy with the hammer and pull him into the crowd. And Henry reacts and is like trying to kick people, grab Henry. Pull him down. Everybody's just fucking slugging the shit out of these two guys, wailing on them. Like, there's nobody really trying to break it up. Initially, I was like, oh, I'll try to break. Nah, fuck this. So now everybody's just slugging each other up in front, wailing on these guys. And they had a shitty attitude. I'll just be honest. Black Flag, like, they weren't playing to the crowd, which is fine. But then, and they were also talking shit, like, and so it escalated. And instead of, I think, being used to being in some safe place where they had control, they were not in control. And they quickly learned they weren't in control. And they got the shit beat out of them. And that, you know, that was that. It happens. Yeah. You know? I learned the same lesson. Like, yeah, there's a point where you're gonna push it over the edge. You have to be aware of what's going on around you. And and if you're willing to do it, make it for a good cause. Not right. There was no cause at that point. It was just pretentious bullshit yeah how did the bouncers act back then when things like that would would happen that was before there was much for bouncers mm. honestly because it hadn't really been that big of a problem most of the violence was self-contained and like i said like there were people that were sick of like the skinhead violence so we would just grab together either beat the shit out of the fucking violent people and then throw them out ourselves or just say, hey, leave, or get your shit together. You can sit in the back and watch. If you do this shit again, beat the shit out of you. But once it gets to like six or 700 people, you don't know everybody. It's harder to contain that shit. And then because of things like what happened at Black Flag, there was, then they started using professional bouncers. 
At what point did law enforcement start to hang around some of these shows? That show, they called the cops because people were trying to attack the van and it it got it went outside at one point. So yeah, that and then once the cops had an idea of what was going on exactly, then they just kind of hung out and waited. Now, whether that was between the bookers and the I don't know. I mean, we were all still booking our own small shows to some degree still, as also we started getting we had never experienced like working with bigger promoters who don't give a shit about the bands quite often. They're just out to make money. And, and that sucks. Not all of them by any means, but there is that aspect. Did you ever play a show for a promoter and perhaps you were promised something and then it never came to fruition, never got paid or it wasn't what you thought it was going to be? Oh yeah. But because of that experience, which we were lucky, that was early, like when we started to get you know, popular or whatever, uh, like, Oh, not everybody's like in the scene. Like, okay. I mean, they may have believed they were in the scene, but obviously they weren't because they somehow communication broke down. Uh, we played with Todd from FYP, got us on a show of all places at the Whiskey A Go Go in LA. This is a famous one. And we had, it was a little festival thing. And uh, we had, were partying really hard out in the back parking lot with Raph from the Crumbs. And, the, and Johnny and the boys, Emil, and we were all partying hard. Chuck had disappeared, partying somewhere. And uh, so we went and played inside, and the uh, show was over. And we saw like a Corvette or some kind of sports car. This is like a multi-tiered parking lot thing. And we saw this car like, well, that's kind of weird. Guy was hauling ass in the parking lot. And all of a sudden, people run out of the building the guy who'd helped book the show was like, gosh, what's that guy? He got all the money. <laughs> Classic like Hollywood crap. And then he's like pulling out on the Sunset Boulevard and like waving at us as he drives away. Like just classic. It was the whole evening was, it was fun because I like dropped my pants at some point because that was one of the first times I'd ever experienced somebody like going, oh, well, if you're going to sell merch here, we're like 20% or 25% or whatever. So I'd written like, 20% across my ass and like <laughs> drop my pants at some point to like, to the venue, mm -hmm. not the crowd. I'd tell like, Hey, whiskey, here's your 20%. That kind of stuff. So yeah. yeah. Cause we learned like, all right, just try to stay within the scene, you know, as much as possible. Cause, cause other people don't care. And you're not, you're not building a scene. If you start working with people or venues that don't give a shit about what you're doing, what do you expect is going to happen? Like, do you expect, they're going to be loving, caring, nurturing because they're not invested in what you're doing. They haven't like worked at the scene for 40 years. Their version is, well, I opened this club three weeks ago and I've got to make money. So yeah, their, their decision is going to be based on money, not on, oh, you know, it may, may show that I have integrity. It may show, it may help my venue last it, if I don't rip people off. And sometimes they're not even ripping people off. It's just their way of doing business and business in punk rock don't really dovetail well together. Yeah, that's true. At what point did you realize people were becoming more aware of no fraud outside of Florida? What was that moment for you when you realized that? Definitely like when the demo tape got reviewed, like people had kind of heard of us from some of the bands that we had started playing little shows with and stuff. But when that demo tape got reviewed, yeah, like, I had people asking me for my phone number and like 
Caroline Records and all these people trying to put out the first seven inch. And and I started talking to people then like, well, what are, are these guys cool to deal with? And some people were like, no, you know, like this is, don't, I don't think that's a good idea. And so like different record label, like Posh Boy and all these people like, okay. And, and so you're a little bit like, I mean, we were a little bit prepared for it because, but at least at that point, we had already started like trying to record for real, but not prepared for the distribution part because that had never really, again, we're not like from a town where that happened. Like if you're from LA, that's built into your whole surroundings as a band. Like even if you're an underground band, there's a strong chance that you'll run into somebody whose dad's an agent or runs some kind of works in the record business. And even if they're not going to try to capitalize on what you're doing, they're going to tell you, they're going to give you advice intentionally or unintentionally. Like who, how are you guys getting these records out? Like normal questions. We didn't have any of that. We had nothing. We had literally nothing. Like I was, that's why a lot of it was DIY because we, we had to do it ourselves, which also facilitated us making tons of mistakes. What was one of those biggest mistakes you feel like you made back then? We probably should have put out the first four track demo in 84, just because it probably would have led to, well, name recognition sooner, whatever that means. But like, because we are isolated, like I talk to people to this day that think no fraud started in like 84, 85, which is true, but it really started in like 83 and in some ways almost 82 when the other band was breaking up. Like they don't realize like, oh, there was a band in Venice, Florida in like 1979, 1980. You know, not that we were any good. You know, we weren't writing that many songs. I was trying to write songs. I was just learning, but we were a punk band. But because we were so isolated, there's like no, people don't even realize it. Even though I'm in no fraud, they don't, like people rarely ask the question, like, were you in a band before that? Like, you know, it gave me the ability to when No Fraud started to within a year, instead of like having this long two or three year learning thing, we were able to just go because I had already done it once as far as, you know, practicing and kind of figuring out how things work and musically, you know. So that is kind of why No Fraud seemed kind of formed to a lot of people like, oh, this band just appeared in 85 and recorded this bitching demo tape. That's weird. Like, no, it, <laughs> it had been going for a couple of years already. Right. Exactly. Songs were rehearsed already. Like we, we were able to cut 18 songs on a demo tape. You don't write 18 songs, you know, like those anyway, in, in a week, like obviously something had been going on for quite a time, a bit of time before that. Sure. At what point did you realize that people were starting to discover no fraud that were from outside the U S it was like the demo tape thing again, because people then started writing us, asking us for songs to put on comps like to put out a seven inch and to book us, you know, like more like a real tour as far as extensiveness. So, yeah. And that's when I really started getting into like the whole pen pal, punk rock pen pal thing and writing people from all over the world. And what to me, you know, I don't know a lot of it got thrown away, but yeah, like I had tons of demo tapes and stuff. Cause that was all the other thing you like trade your tape with people and, then that's also how I found bands to book and bring in. It was just full networking, but on a much slower scale. Right. It was qu- quite different, obviously, <laughs> uh, having to do that. Were you the one who was handling a lot of that part of 
the business side of getting 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 the name out there, the music, uh, being in zines and all that? Were, who was handling a lot of that? It would, yeah, most of it was me. I mean, just for whatever reason. I mean, I don't, I don't know how it ended up being that way, but it it yeah, it was mostly me. I mean, I would have the other people come in, and when we had tons of mail or something, I would say, "Hey, you guys should be writing some of these people back." So, so some of it got spread out just because it was too much. And, you know, I was trying to, at that time, still write songs and, and uh, learn to play guitar a little better. And I'm like, just freaking writing letters for six hours at a night. Like, <laughs> yeah. And I had like, run away from home by then. And so I was like, I didn't have all the same resources. So yeah, I was involved. Did you have anyone close to you who was helping in any way to, provide some guidance to get to kind of kind of navigate through a lot of these things not for the first year or two of uh you know like but once we started playing some of tony shows and stuff they helped because that's who the first pressing of the record came out on but there was some small issues with that too because by then we were already kind of self-contained and we were out playing shows and moving around on our own accord and we had already been in existence for a while like before they existed technically. So I guess we were maybe a little more independent and then BP came up, which was from their area. They were more like Sarasota Bradenton. And I, Jeff and I, Jeff had seen some of the first no fraud shows and stuff. I, I, one time, like, because Jason would occasionally quit the band, uh, I would was like, boy, it'd be cool if because Jeff plays bass, you know. I was like in my mind thinking maybe, but by then he had gotten BP together and they were going, and so No Clubs was primarily using uh, No Fraud in BP at a lot of the shows, which in my mind kind of sucked because most once the shows got bigger and were moved into St. Pete and Tampa, I was like, well, that kind of sucks because I know there's a lot of bands up there that are from there. Like, why aren't we using some of those bands? As, as We did. They did. Not me. I didn't really have much to do with it. But I was in with the no clubs thing. But at the same time, I was not in because I was like, I'm not sure how this is going. I mean, it's benefiting me. But we were also technically probably the bigger band from the area. So I understood why they were using us because we draw people. We would draw people from not Tampa, like we would bring up another whole crowd from Sarasota County. So then Tony was the one who was like, hey, I, I have distribution because by then I think he had his own record store. So I, I'm in with all these distributors. You guys need distribution, which I was learning about. I'm like, yeah, I'm tired of making tapes. Like, this is crazy. So he was helping us. And that was awesome because it took some of the pressure off me. But then there was conflict because he was like, well, I'd rather you guys do a whole album. I'm like, oh, we just did this whole tape. Like, we'd rather just put out a seven inch and knock it out, get it out there. He's like, well, I got BP recording too, and they're going to do a whole album. So how about we just put out their album and then we'll put out your seven inch? And I'm like, yeah, but we're already done with recording our seven inch. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Because we were also like, let's just get, you know, keep the machine moving. Right. And uh, so that, again, conflict. So, you know, we made a thousand records with them. We forced them to put it out before that any they weren't happy. So, you know, then they were like, well, we don't know if we want to press another thousand. I'm like, we already sold a thousand. Like, we should be pressing another thousand. Like the hard part's all done. Like making the 
record is the easy part, but you know, they were also trying to take that money and then put out the other record. Like I understand what they were trying to do, but at the time we were just like, we need this shit. Like, why aren't we selling more? We already sold out. Like we need more records. So that's why we, the second batch, we just did it ourselves because it was like, they weren't going to, they weren't going to make them. So yeah, there was like some conflict, but they did help us a lot. Like, like you're saying, guide us through some issues. Right. You mentioned BP belching penguin for those that aren't aware. Describe what it was like seeing that band back in the day for those that never had the chance to see them. The first version, uh, which I liked maybe because it was different, you know, from what we were doing uh, to some degree. Like I liked, uh, I'm trying to think of when we saw him. must've been 84, 85, maybe 85, somewhere in there. It was just Jeff and Ron and sorry, I can't remember. Right now. I remember it while we're talking, uh, but it's a three piece and they were kicking ass. It was, it was cool. It was different. Jeff was saying he had a kind of different voice, but there had always been long before the punk thing, like a Venice Sarasota rivalry. We were the rednecks, and Sarasota was the fancy college town, but you know, little tiny colleges like Ringling Art School and New College were both, you know, I would be surprised if they had a thousand people at the time going to school there. But it is an art oriented town, there's Ringling Museums there. So they were like, you know, fancy, and the people 10 miles south were rednecks. <laughs> And so there was just that rivalry in general between the towns. Uh, and then when each one had a punk band, finally, then it was like, you know, the rival of the rival punk bands. But I, you know, I love Jeff and we always have gotten along. Eric, I see. I knew I remember Eric was a guitar player. And we were, we were super tight. But then, you know, then people decide they like one band more than the other. And then there's like a mini pseudo rivalry. But there was, you know, I would have them come play our warehouse and stuff. There was like no rivalry rivalry right you know i thought the lyrics were cool like everything i had no problem but you know people become fans of one or it's in their town and they decide to have like hometown loyalty or whatever but yeah great band fun oh i always had fun when i think of that area and that part of florida and and labels uh stiff pole records would be the first one that comes to mind uh what are your memories of stiff pole and how important was that label for the scene uh stiff incredible person uh <laughs> i had met him years and years because he was in the scene uh him and uh of all people scott burns and uh some other people which i didn't really know you know scott burns wasn't scott burns yet you know death metal engineer but uh and uh, some other cats, which some of them I remotely knew from skating, like in Clearwater and stuff. So like Stiff started dating somebody from Venice and I saw him somewhere randomly in Venice and was like, what are you doing down here? And so we started talking and then uh, he's you know, I always liked your band. Do like the best local band? Like maybe I could put out a record by you someday. And this is like in probably in the late eighties. So time, like I, we were trying to record and we had, the band had reformed again already. We had gone through some shit. And uh, so we were in a big studio in Tampa. Oh, no, Clearwater, I think. And uh, Pete Jay was playing guitar. And so we're trying to take it serious and getting a good recording. And then we just weren't stoked and all this, some other stuff. Like the drummer had quit. And uh, again, another drummer. And uh, 
and this recording was kind of laying there unfinished. So I was like, wow, man, that'd be a good thing for Stiff. So at some point we remixed it. I don't know if, I think Scott was involved, but uh, we knocked that out and Stiff put that out. And that was awesome. You know, it was cool to have like a record with Stiff. And I, and it, again, somebody I'd known for a long time and had been in the scene. So for me, it was like perfect. And then, and then he just kept going. And then Walt, who became our drummer, ended up printing all that stuff for him. And, you know, to us, it was just like our friend and our family. And uh, he put out tons of cool bands from, you know, not all of them local, but the majority of them local. And it was good for the scene because that was kind of a point in the scene where things had kind of, there weren't so many venues. There was, there was stuff going on still, but other stuff had overtaken it. Like by the time he got rolling, like grunge was huge or something probably, or, and uh, it was just good. Like he helped expose the Pink Lincolns to a lot of people, stuff like that. It was good. How important was a band like Pink Lincolns to be also a contemporary from the area? Yeah, like I had known Dorsey from like other things, like back in the day. And one of the people who definitely I feel probably didn't like No Fraud. Def Dorsey was definitely old school punk. But I liked Dorsey's bands. They were all rad, like even his new AV stuff. It was it was all good. And then uh <laughs> and like Rat Cafeteria and stuff, awesome. And then uh I got the demo tape from uh, Chris or something, and uh I was like, well, it's rad. This cool band, and then I like just trying to figure out who was in it and everything. We got an original demo, which might have been 85, 86, too. And then uh, I was like, Oh, this is a good band. And they kept going and going, and then uh, like they got popular, but it was kind of like connected to like bands that I wasn't super into. Like, I was friends with Ben, snail mail friends with Ben from uh, Screech and Weasel. But at one point we decided we just didn't like each other or something or didn't like each other's bands anymore. Like once that was weird. I don't know what happened, but it was not nothing bad. Just like, ah, whatever. And then, uh, so like what, whatever, like Pink Lincolns went and did, it just wasn't like directly in my world anymore. Like I was more into like thrash and, and, and that was also when the scene magically kind of exploded in a pop punk frenzy which I I just fucking, I detest most of that music. So it's not my thing. I like punk because it was like all the things we said a long time ago, political, uh, aggressive, angry. It does stuff that other music at that, that especially at that time, didn't do at all to a large degree still should. But now punk is that kind of acquiesced and has gone on to be kind of pop in a way. Like Green Day to me is not a, especially now, is a pop man. They're not a punk band. Like, they're a weak version of Cheap Trick to me. Like, it's not punk. Like, I get that they're decent dudes and they donate money to cool things. I'm not saying they're bad people. I'm just saying the music isn't dangerous in any way. And punk, initially, was extremely dangerous on many facets. And what they do is just kind of like, eh, meh, you know. <laughs> Were there any... Florida bands, especially from the area, that may have made that pivot to a more pop sound that yeah. you that, that you kind of gave a pass to. Like, you know what? I, I kind of do like this, or I, I like what they're doing. Was there any band like that that you can think of? Yeah, I don't. I should, I should, you know, maybe rephrase. I don't like think their their music doesn't have any merit. It just doesn't do anything for me. But it also is kind of generic out. Like you can hear 
And, and you could say the same thing about thrash bands. There's like a, a formula to it. And then there's a thing. So when I hear like uh, Antares processed harmony vocals or I, it doesn't do much for me, but you know, like we're good friends with like say less than Jake, which was more of ska punk than went pop punky, but like I'll, I'll you know, Vinny tried, tried out for no fraud and, he said, no, sorry, Vinny. But then... Why'd you tell him? Why'd you tell him no? Why did he not get... He, he, he just couldn't play what we were doing. Mm. And not in a bad way. It just wasn't his thing. Sure. And then, but he brought us help bring us Walt. So, like, we're all friends. I'm more interested in somebody that, and I shouldn't say only play one thing, but plays one thing so well that when you try somebody, take somebody from a different genre and have them play that, they can't do it. Because it's so naturally, the person that's playing it is so naturally built to play it. You mentioned Scott Burns a little while ago. Did you ever have the opportunity to record at Morris Sound? Yeah, yeah. It was awesome. I mean, I probably should have been more mentally prepared for it, but uh, I probably wasn't as into it as I should have been. But I, I, I mean, now I appreciate it, but he's an awesome engineer. I think where the band was, it, it was a good idea. I just probably could have done more to make it a better recording. But yeah, there's some stuff out that we did with Scott. Um, it's on the Six Pack to Go, which is the Babe Watch CD. So he did a lot of that. And some of it we recorded ourselves and then brought up and he fixed it up. And some of it, some of it I think we recorded all ourselves. But there's definitely like eight songs where he engineered them and did the best he could. Like, like I said, there's things that looking back, I was like, oh, I wish we would have layered more guitars or stuff that maybe he would have been better at, like play to his strengths instead of like trying to do our thing. I think on that Babe Watch 7 uh, release, your head's on David Hasselhoff's body. Is that right? Am I getting that right? Walt got that. I was one of the, I was the Australian guy or something. Oh, I, okay. <laughs> Walt was tall. So we got, but Greg, since he was new, he got the girl body. There you go. You can still see Pam Anderson, though. No one got her body. Looks like she was still Pam. Mm -mm. No one messes with Pam, baby. There you go. <laughs> with all that was going on at Morris Sound at that time, were you also into the, a lot of the bands? Scott was recording a lot of those death metal bands. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of them had been like no fraud fans. I That's what I said. I wish maybe I had paid more attention, like I was into it. But once again, we were so busy doing what we were doing. But... Yeah. Yeah. Like looking back, should have I done like a side project and utilize Scott to like say, hey, get me into one of these things somehow and we'll do some freaking, you know, eight song record or something, you know, now. Yeah. I, but that's with hindsight. Yeah, of course. Because I see so many similarities, which is also why No Fraud maybe wasn't as popular, say, like when you compare it to Pink Lincoln's and all that scene got big, even though we were maybe would make funny records like Babe Watch or something, do a funny song. We were musically way more aligned with like the thrash and the death metal bands. Like we were fast, loud guitars, distorted, screaming vocals, like all of that <laughs> at that time aligned way more with what they were doing than like pop punk, which was huge. And but we would get, because we were considered a punk band, we get lumped in with those bands. When we play a show or some metal guy would randomly show up, they'd be like, whoa, you guys are really good. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty though. 
Yeah, usually when I've talked to people and when no fraud comes up, usually the word that follows is no fraud are legends. When you hear that, what does that mean to you? That my back hurts for a very good reason. Old punker. Uh, it's weird. I know it doesn't make any sense to me in the fact that we just do what we've always been doing. I mean, we intentionally, at some point, maybe to our detriment, intentionally didn't do major record labels, didn't play like the fest or something, because I don't really believe in what the fest has become. I don't hate it. I'm not a hater. I just don't think no fraud should play shows that have like corporate sponsors, that kind of thing. Like it goes against what the lyrics talk about. So, and I get it. You get a larger audience and all that and more. Yeah. I mean, that's true. And, but then it's not true. Like, are those people really going to get down and dirty and dig into it? And maybe, maybe, uh, but evidence has shown that bands that do that either break up or just become irrelevant because people realize they don't have any integrity. Like I heard something a long time ago, uh, the medium is the message, which is like, you know, makes more sense than I'm going to play to a giant crowd at a Budweiser sponsored event and maybe pick up five new fans where you may lose 10 fans because they'd be like, oh, those guys are fucking sellouts. If there was a label, perhaps that no fraud could have found themselves on, what label would that would have been for you? Boy, that's a hard one because almost all those labels are gone. <laughs> um, honestly, it would be more like the metal labels. Like we did a record with Nuclear Blast. We should have done a better job. We should have done whatever, hindsight. But yeah, I would say more like the metal labels. Like because A, some of them are still around. Uh, B, because the music, I think, would have lasted better on there where most of the punk labels have disappeared, you know, that, that were around when we started. Yeah, it's hard, man. I would say something like, you know, definitely not Metal Blade, but something of that, like in your mind, that would make you think, oh, hard, hard, fast music. How did the Nuclear Blast connection come around? One of those people that wrote us back in the day and from the demo tape, I think. He initially started out to be a punk label, and then literally while he was getting it all put together, he got super and more in the metal, and, and, and which at Thrash, which was just coming out, which made sense to sign us. Now, should we have made a more thrashy record? Yeah, probably. But so, yeah, it, he just wrote us and said, hey, I'd be interested in putting out a record. And magic happened. Magic. Have you slowed down at all, or you still feel like you're working as hard as ever? I wish you could do more music stuff, which I've been you know, trying to do more. But yeah, I mean, we still put out records. and I mean, the scene itself is, is more spread out. I wouldn't say it's more, obviously it's less, what I do anyway, is less popular and less active. But I would say the scene itself is maybe as big, but just spread across thinner, thinner layers, thinner, thinner layers. Was uh, Straight Lines, Crooked Morals the most recent record Snow Fraud put out? Yes. Let me think about that. Well, and then I put out a seven inch of the first thing Walt and I ever recorded together, which was 
technically it was no fraud, but we were still experimenting. Like I wasn't even sure if it was going to be no fraud when we, it was just like songs we wrote goofing around, which is Paradise Lost, which was a demo tape. We only made a couple hundred of them. And because uh, we were like, oh, we got a new thing going on here. And then we continued to call it no fraud. I mean, by the sound of straight lines, crooked morals, and the length of those songs, it sounded like you were going faster than ever before. So, uh, many, it many reviewers have said so. Yeah, it's yeah. I mean, I guess I looked back across what we had done and maybe what people had said in a long context, like 20, 30 years. And they would always say things like, the ones that stuck with me anyway would be things like, boy. Your live show is different than the records. It's the same, but a lot different. And so in my mind, it was just, okay, live show is going to be faster, a little more distorted sounding probably. Um, so why don't I just try to take that live show and put it on a record, but of course in a studio setting. So yeah, faster, louder. Yeah. But Makes still sense. Exactly. That has... That hasn't changed. You've been very consistent for 40 plus years. So uh, the formula is there. So whether you were a fan in the very beginning or whether you, you should be able to follow no fraud from the beginning to where things are and get the same band. <laughs> so you can't, you can't say that about a lot of bands though, right? A lot of bands change their sound over years, right? Or they, they experiment a bit more and it doesn't sound like that's something no fraud really, uh, really dabbled in. Uh, I mean, there was some stuff we did for sure, but I mean, we did a little bit of stuff that we should have probably just done a different project. But from thinking about it when we were doing it, I was like, boy. And and like you're saying, looking at other bands and boy, like, boy, this band, I really liked them when they started and they became something I didn't, which just seems to be the normal formula. Like you're saying, they start out maybe fast, they get a little slower, a little maybe better at playing, and then they get somehow they fucking write ballads. And everybody's like, oh, great. And some fucking company uses it for a commercial. And everybody's like, yay. And then the people, the original fans are like, boy, these guys suck now. So I tried to not do that intentionally. You're correct through my life because, yeah. I mean, there's variances in it and the way it's done and the way it's produced and the recordings and some of the styles and guitar tones and all that. But it would be like, saying, hey, I think Salvador Dali should paint realistic paintings of just portraitures of fruit on a table without all the surrealism. Like, why? Why would, why would you ask Van Gogh to not paint in his style? It's those people did those things because it's who they were inside, like part of their emotion and how they expressed themselves. Why would a band, like you don't say, oh man, B.B. King never progressed. He just kept playing blues for 60 years. What a weirdo. Like, really? What, why do people have to say that about punk bands? Like, they never got better or their style didn't change. Like, they were who they were. Like, why do they have to progress? Is it really progressing or is it just changing? Yeah. Change isn't always progress, right? You buy bread, it's fresh, and then you leave it out or something happens, it gets moldy. And then what are you supposed to say? Like, boy, that bread is sure progressed. <laughs> like, people are fucking stupid, as we say in our song. Come on, man. If that is the art somebody's making and they enjoy it, then that's their art to make. It's not really, you can be a critic of it, but you can't say, 
they should have done this, they should have done that. It's just who they were. It's it, if you like the art, you like the art. If you don't like it, don't buy it. Don't go see it. Don't show. You know, it's fine. If you're a trendy fuck, you'll just go to this whatever punk band's popular right now. Then you'll go over here and you watch this band. The band that you liked six months ago, yeah, you're not into them. I'm not going to go to that show anymore. Oh, and now there's this new band over here. They do this. I'm going to go see them. And those two other bands that I liked, I don't really listen to them anymore. All right. But to me, that's no different than pop music. That's the formula that pop music is built on. You go see this band. They're popular for a year or two, three years. They capitalize on that as much as they can. Boom, dead. Move on to the next thing, you know, which is market capitalism, which is not what No Fraud's about. It sounds like a lot of these emotions and a lot of these ideas and thoughts and feelings came out on that record. Uh, the, mo the, the most recent one. It seemed like a lot of that came out on it. So that record was recorded with Walt, right? Before? Correct. Correct. And Walt passed in 2020. Am I getting that right? Boy. Yeah. I try not to remember. It's been, yeah, I think it's three years. Uh, yeah. We recorded it, started recording it. It was like Joe on guitar, Greg on bass, and Walt on drums. And then I played guitar on everything. I wrote most of them. I wrote a couple of them with different people, some people from California, a couple of them with Raph from the Crumbs and uh, Florida. And then, uh, so, yeah, and then a couple with Joe for sure. Joe wrote some. And we recorded it, though, as far back as some of them as 2014, 2015 in Walt's uh, studio in Florida. So, yeah, it was me also looking back and saying, like, boy, there's been like a lot of things that happened in Gainesville at the time. And I like Gainesville. We played there a lot. And, uh, but like the scene had, and it is not fully a monoculture, but it appeared to be a monoculture sometimes when you looked at parts of it, at least from the outside, you know, it was real pop punk, ska punk, like things that sold, but there are tons of other bands there. And initially when the scene started in the eighties, there was all kinds of bands and for a while, they didn't promote any of that, at least now and occasionally the fest and other things, they try to book a more varied approach, but, you know, still super heavy on one style of music. There was a, a story that Brent Wilson shared when I had him on the podcast uh, from Radon, and he shared a story about the No Fraud show in his bedroom. Do you remember playing Brent Wilson's bedroom? Where did well, what town was it? Did he say? I imagine it was in Gainesville. Yeah, it was probably Gainesville. Yeah. Um Gainesville. See, that's why I mentioned Gainesville, because Gainesville was so rad. But it's not just the 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 scenesters fault. Like it had a lot of house shows, man. Like just like that, which are my favorite shows because it's just um there's no pretense to it. You're playing uh, you're not making money. You're just doing it for fun and the art of it and uh, to interact with people. And boy, if it's the one I'm thinking of, some shit might have got broken. Besides the normal hearts. When No Fraud plays, it's pretty much a heartthrob, Ben. A lot of beer spillage. We ripped the paint off the, the original hardback floor one time. Uh, his house. If it's the one I'm thinking of, it, there might be pictures of that show, actually, online. I think it's with Guitar Pete, Jason on bass, and Rob Rampy on drums, if I remember correctly. It was a good lineup. It was a good good beating went down. I think he sent me a picture, too, of 
than it was that one. No I'm fraud. Sure. Yeah. That, yeah. That was a good show, man. That was a, there was a lot of bodies in that little building. A lot yeah. of bodies, a lot of people, a lot of sweat, a lot of people falling on each other. My favorite. And it being the holidays and whatnot, and this being a episode that'll that's uh, in December. So talk about what is one of Dan Destructo's favorite Christmas songs? Fuck Christmas by Fear. I think that's my favorite one. God, I'm not. I'm not. Sorry, folks. I'm not super into the holidays. I, unless we're going to talk about Gaza or something, I don't know. But I'm not that into the holidays. You can't even talk about that stuff. See, this is part of what I'm talking about. Can't talk about any of those things, even in the punk world, where you used to be able to. People would be writing songs about it, and it would be a topic, and then we'd all talk about it, and you'd learn things about each other. Now, unless you're in one camp or the other, can't really talk about it anymore. But no. Not really a Christmas music fan. I, like I said, kind of got forced to play in that world when I was little. So when I heard Fuck Christmas by Fear. It's a good one. I know we're getting close to wrapping things up, but I do have to ask you about a documentary that was done uh, several years ago. We can't help. We're from Tampa. As far as I know, it's one of the few. There might be one other documentary that really brought out and shed light on the scene going on in the Tampa area. So what are your memories of that documentary and, and how important was that, do you think, to the scene? Tony Tino, I think, made that, right? He, he in a way, sadly, the uh, areas mostly um, kind of recognized just for the violence, which is weird considering how many bands came out of there and like random like I said, like all these different people came through, even just No Fraud that went on to be in uh, other bands. So it's weird to me, like uh, Kirk from Buzz Oven, you know, Weed Eater Buddies, that that Kirk was a Venice guy, was wanted to be in No Fraud. We were like, nah, you know, but that time we just didn't fit. But all these different people came through until he did that. I mean, granted, it was part of it was on that violence, because it has to be talked about, but... This is strange. Like even what technically are probably the biggest bands from the Gainesville thing, all of them came from Sarasota, Port Charlotte, like Bradenton. They're really not all from Gainesville, except, you know, a couple of them obviously are, but half of them are not. They're all from where we're from. And it's weird to me because, you know, in, in 1979, we weren't really thinking about helping start all that to occur. But it would be interesting for somebody to do a real fully historical version, like you're saying. Maybe it would need to be segmented in the regions. You know, but yeah, it was very good because it 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 started to document like all these bands and where they came from and and the scene in general, how it started, you know, to some aspects and I mean, I think most people see the scene as being strictly uh, California or like Northeast and the whole Florida thing. I remember some statistic at one time that might have been in the late 80s or early 90s, like Florida somehow had as big a record sales as some of the not bands, but purchasing of punk was like that large in that area to distribution. So it was like, boy, there's this obviously a ton of people down there that are into this music, some you know, different forms of it, but, and yet 
it's never taken seriously. So it's strange. So I think it was awesome that it uh, made a solid statement that, hey, there's stuff has been going on here forever. And I know that was more focused than on punk, but if you think more broadly, what band in the area comes to mind that you think was just very under the radar, you wish would be known or have more notoriety or would have done more? Does any band come to mind, not just punk itself, but just in general in the area? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think a lot of the metal bands got good recognition because they got good distribution. So that's awesome. Like, I'm glad for those bands. Yeah, it's hard, man. That's a hard one. Boy. I think there were definitely, I would say this, there's definitely bands that should have gotten more recognition because from touring and recording and uh, doing what I do for a living, I see bands that are huge, you know, money and popularity wise that have people in them that I know are nowhere near as talented as people I've played with in Florida. Like I'm speaking of Florida bands and that part's hard on me because I'm like, boy, these guys are just hacks and they're cashing in. Well, there's always people I know that have done tons of hard work and, and uh, poured their heart into it. And some of them, you know, didn't survive. Some of them are dead because they went and did other stuff or or just stopped making music because they felt underappreciated or unappreciated. So that part's that sucks. And that's where when you look at the scene as a whole, and I'm not picking on Green Day, I'm just saying like that's a good delineation, a time when all of a sudden there was money in punk, kind of. Like that to me, it was a mark of poor stewardship because it did bury all the other bands. Like that uh, central focus on that style or that uh, also came into play was something that hadn't been super big before was, well, who are you guys? You're not making any money. You're not popular. Like all of a sudden, the measure of, of capital gain became the demarcation of if you were successful or not. And that was bad for the artist in, artists in general, because now they started having this self-worth issue. Whereas before, that wasn't a big deal. Like, ah, oh, I'm just doing it. I'm making, I'm making music. I'm making art. And my friends, my hundred friends dig it, and we're all having a good time. And of course, you get older and you have to make money or whatever. But that didn't mean that bands couldn't have still kept going and just had a job. Maybe you're not touring as much, but you could still play and, have, and make art and do creative stuff. But that explosion of the monetary part of the scene, I think, helped wipe out that other part of the scene where maybe had it not had that meteoric rise into, uh, you know, the canon of, uh, you know, the pop society and money, maybe the scene would have still been healthy and growing and, and kind of, and maybe the more DIY part of it, like maybe there would have been some people that said, hey, you know what? I got some money. I'm going to open a little club. I don't care if I'm making a lot of money. I just want the club to exist so there's a place for us all to go. That whole idea got stomped out. A natural progression of the DIY. Like people did go on, like Walt built a printing aspect of it. You know, I did some recording stuff. Other people did other people did studios like other uh, Chuck Loose does art and like and uh, graphics and stuff for people and bands. And and of course, you don't have to just do punk bands, but I'm just saying they built businesses that serviced 
in a nice way, in a in a non you know not completely capitalistic uh, pop consumerism version that serviced the scene and the community versus you know some race to the top of some money ladder. And if you don't get there, why do you guys? Eat? Why are you still even playing? Why are you still making art? Why are you doing this? You're not making any money, which is to me part of what the whole thing was about in the first place: self-expression. And just speaking of that self-expression, is there anything that you feel like you haven't said yet that you're working on with your next album? Yeah. I mean, there's always new stuff to talk about, I suppose. Some of it old. And maybe I, on the next record, that's kind of what I'm looking at. Like I'm rereading Frankenstein because that was at its time kind of a way to say, hey, science is out of control. Like technology isn't being regulated, which is basically what the book was about. There's like un unregulated scientific advancement and it led to somebody building a monster, you know, or whatever. But I mean, you could totally do that. You could redo that story. I mean, I know that some Netflix did another, but you could do that story as AI right now. Like that is the same thing. Somebody's building an entity that will have some form of consciousness. That's exactly what the book's about, you know? Like Fahrenheit 451, that's kind of about censorship to a large degree and where you get this monoculture society that only does one thing to some extent and you aren't allowed to offer. In fact, the facts change so quick, you can't have books because it's like a printed version of history. And that if that history becomes uncomfortable, untenable at the moment, because it, it, does, it disagrees with the narrative that you're saying, well, that book has to go away. So like all these things are still going on, man. These people predicted what these technologies, like they were able to extrapolate in their mind, oh, well, this is going to lead to this. This is going to lead to this. This is going to lead to this. And they write a, you know, they came up with a story about it, right? 1984, same thing. And, it, and we're seeing that with things like Ukraine, Gaza, like you can't, vaccines, all these things, you can't express yourself because you'll either be censored completely, taken off your social media, or your friends won't talk to you, whatever it is. So you're not, in a way, you are censored. You can't even talk about it, which is fascinating to me because that's like not scientific. The whole thing of science is you should be discussing every option and doing all these different experiments, be they social or not, and, and coming up with answers. Guess what? One answer may work for someone, may not work for someone else. Right. Like just like medicine, you know, when you get when you, they ask you, what's the first thing you do when, when, when you go to see a new doctor? One of the first things they ask you is, are there any medications you're allergic to? Because they know some medications will work for some people, don't work for other people. But if you tried to bring that up during the craziness, you, you might be censored. So, yeah, there's tons of new things, which are still to me, to some degree, old things. Yeah. But that gives you the ability to write new lyrics because you realize like, boy, this stuff isn't over. This person wrote this book about it. People didn't learn a lesson. We're still, we're still going through it all, which tells you something about human nature. But yeah, I, there's definitely some things to write about still. Do you feel like because of the time that we're living in now that whether it's consciously or subconsciously that the, lyrics and music that you write for no fraud it today is censored compared to would it be if it wasn't 
this way? Yeah, when I was doing that last record, I thought about it. I was like, boy, there's some stuff I'm saying here. Like the idea for the cover art, which for people, if you haven't seen it, is basically uh, Capitol building like as a battle zone. <laughs> um, I came up with that idea a long time ago, uh, like 2015 or something, and drew it out and had the artist knock it out. Mark knocked it out. And then the record came out, and guess what? Six months later, Capitol Building, all the chaos. People are like, how'd you know that? I'm like, yeah, I get thought about it. I'm like, boy, some of this is going to cause a problem. Like, this is, but, you know, without distribution, somewhat intentional. Um, I mean, I've had people tell me they don't want to carry the record because, yeah, it's too controversial. So I guess in a way, yeah, you're right. It also had... I don't know if this was symbolic of the movie they live, but it had like some of those signs of what you can see, what people aren't really saying, but you know, that's what's being said. Did that have any influence as well on the yeah, cover? Yeah, definitely. Um, in a way, like exactly. Like some of it is the subtext of what's going on, whether I guess I would say they know that some people know that this crap's going on and they don't care because they don't want to rock the boat or they're profiting from it. And by, stuff going on. I mean, graft and greed and corruption in general and uh, like wars for profit, basically. Um, so, yeah, some of it is kind of from the they live theme in a way uh, that you look at a sign or something's up one week and then it's gone and you're like, why is that gone? And then you realize, oh, it's because it conflicted with this other thing or uh, you put up some very opaque statement that could be taken in seven different ways, things like that. It's a great record. I mean, I definitely enjoy it. And uh, I like the cover art as well. And uh, looking forward to the next album or whatever songs are kind of in the fire, whatever you're working on, Dan, I'm sure fans of No Fraud will be looking out for that as well. So as you kind of get ready to close things out, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast and to tell your story, but also the story of no fraud. And uh, it's just been a pleasure having you on. So as we kind of close things out, I'd like to turn over to you. Any final remarks or closing you want to share? The floor is yours. Hmm. Yeah. Final statements. I don't have final statements. Only a future statements. God dang it. Um, come see the show. I know you're going to be scared. I know you may be scared. You may wet your pants a little. We like that. We like wet pants occasionally. Come to the show. If I single you out, it's only because I love you. And I want you to grow with me as a flower. We'll both grow together, intertwined into a beautiful latticework over which nothing can pass. We're so high. Uh, no. we, it's about love. In the end, it's about love. And maybe a little bit about hate. Those two things beat together. Enjoy yourself. Enjoy yourself, people. Have a good time. Maybe do things that are a little dangerous sometimes. Do things that aren't dangerous the other. You know, have fun. Stay free. Most importantly, don't get pinned down. And thank you for having us, good sir. Two thumbs up on this end.